1: Bring in show music,
0: please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Recession, debt, and the banking system with Guggenheim's executive chair and former CEO of Bear Stearns,
1: Alan Schwartz. We believe there's a recession coming. Now, we don't know how deep. It's hard to know.
0: Plus, what he's worried about.
1: The biggest impact that I worry about is on the federal budget.
0: And President Biden heading to the Middle East. It's a big vote of confidence in Israel. Admiral James Stavridis on the high stakes.
3: It's a powerful show of force, and it's designed to deter Iran.
0: Plus the budget hotel deal in the making, the Bitcoin bounce, Jim Jordan's chances, and work from home, not so three years ago. If
4: you're gonna go in more than once a quarter or something, you better be closer. You
2: gotta kind of live there.
0: It is Tuesday, October seventeenth, twenty twenty-three. Squawk Pod begins right now.
1: Stand, Becky, by in three, two, one. Cue, please.
4: Good morning, and welcome to Squawk Box, right here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq Market Site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today.
2: Let's talk about the price of Bitcoin because it has been quite volatile shot up yesterday in a big way but then pulled back after BlackRock denied this report back and if you saw it a uh, crypto media outlet Coin Telegraph saying that US regulars had approved the application for a spot Bitcoin ETF everybody cheered and went crazy uh, Coin Telegraph later though retracted that story and says it's now conducting an internal investigation into the inaccurate report now BlackRock confirmed to multiple media outlets that its application is still under review by the SEC crypto markets have been awaiting news on several pending applications for spot Bitcoin ETFs, which are expected to drive investment in the sector if approved. I say if because I think we still don't know whether. Just just because BlackRock and Fidelity and these big names are asking for it doesn't mean the SEC has to give it. And so I've never under, I mean, do I think there's momentum? Sure, but.
4: It doesn't necessarily right. one lead to the other. What's interesting about that, though, is the idea that the company that put out that story is now conducting an internal investigation, which makes you wonder if they suspect that somebody was doing this and making trades uh, based around right. it, just how that happened. It, it wasn't how it AD, happened, it was a how mistake. the reporter got we the, got information, the information and was somebody right. feeding
2: them the information and then right. trying to do something. Uh, elicit on the other end. Right,
4: just because uh, obviously this is a market yep. that's waiting for this and you saw, it was kind you of primed the, at the pump, you saw the yep. move and then you saw it come back down.
2: We need to get a speaker tomorrow. Um, the American people deserve to have their Congress, their House of Representatives working. I felt good walking into the conference. I feel even better now. We got a few more people we want to talk to, listen to, uh, and then we'll have a vote tomorrow.
4: Congressman Jim Jordan's bid for House Speaker appears to be gaining momentum. Yesterday, he won the support of several skeptics who were opposed to his candidacy last week. That includes Mike Rogers of Alabama, Ken Calvert of California, and Ann Wagner of Missouri. Jordan can only afford to lose four Republicans and still win the gavel. As of yesterday, a tally by NBC News found that there were at least five who were either opposed to Jordan or skeptical of his candidacy. A vote is expected in the House today at noon. A lot of different options as to what would happen if that didn't uh, pass, if there was something else there. Still talk about other Republicans who might come into it or the idea of cooperating with the Democrats to give more powers to Patrick McHenry, who is the existing uh, speaker in residence, kind of just waiting, and the pro tem speaker, uh, who does not have a lot of powers at this point, meaning that they can't get legislation passed at this point. Choice Hotels offering to buy Wyndham Hotels and Resorts for $90 a share and a mix of cash and stock. That would value the deal at about $7.8 billion. Uh, So far, they had been talking back and forth, hasn't been working out. Choice CEO, Patrick Pacius joined us on the show. He said he thought the two companies were close to a deal a few weeks ago, but then Wyndham decided to disengage. Now they're taking that deal directly to the shareholders.
2: So by bringing the two companies together, we believe that through direct bookings, lower operating costs, and a much more robust rewards program, we have an opportunity to help our owners of our franchises really improve their value of their assets and their return on investment.
4: Again, these talks have been taking place since April of earlier this year. You do see Wyndham Hotels stock up. It had been up even more than this earlier this morning. Right now it's up by about 12%. 77.55 is the last tick. Choice Hotel shares, down by about 4.7 percent. So again, this is a cash and stock deal: 55 percent cash, 45 percent stock. The valuation changes based on the price of Choice Hotels at any given point.
2: It's an interesting transaction, especially given all the consolidation we've seen in the hotel business, just between Star, you know, Marriott and, and Starwood and the like, and just the cost savings that they've created and the loyalty programs. I wonder if the those kind of programs matter as much for the, these kind of hotels, which are, are considered more middle-tier. But mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely an interesting development. Take a look at this. I don't know if this is surprising or not, but probably surprising depending on where people, well, what people were thinking about two, two years ago, maybe. Uh, the return-to-office push in America, it actually appears to be working. According to the latest data from the Census Bureau, fewer than 26% of U.S. households still have someone working remotely at least one day per week. That's down from 37% in early 2021. Now, the census data also showing that workers are seeking remote jobs at a higher rate than companies are now offering them. And large cities are far outpacing rural areas for remote work. Washington, D.C., Seattle, Boston, and San Francisco all had rates near or above 40%. So it's, it's a total shift. And the whole idea of these Zoom cities that people talked about during the pandemic emerging You know people thinking that you know there was going to be a huge population that would live in park city utah or would live in you know different different parts of colorado and other places but would just work remotely that appears not to be the case in fact most of the remote working seems to be actually the degree there is remote working it's like in this in certain cities like a seattle or san francisco or whatever so
4: i mean i guess that makes some sense, especially if you're looking if companies who have brought people back may expect you to be there at least once a week right. or twice a week or something. So if you're going to go in more than once a quarter or something, you better be closer you gotta, to the to, You've got to kind
2: of live there. So,
4: and, and, Which exacerbates the whole issue of affordable housing. Right. Because yesterday we were talking, remember, to the home builder who was saying, yeah, it's been great. People have moved out to the other locations where we can build more homes. If you're not doing remote work and if you are doing remote work, you're living nearby, it's not helping with the additional places. Well, this goes
2: back to what houses. Steve Case was trying to do. Remember, he was yeah, trying the rise to of the basically, the rise of the rest and he right. was trying to set up cities and, and towns across the country. where. And by could, the way,
4: they, they've had some success with that. Right? Rise of the rest has made some success. Oh, no question. Just, but,
2: but this was actually supposed to catapult it even more. And yeah. the question is, does it? What's also, though, interesting, I think, about the census report is specifically this idea that now more workers want the remote work yeah. Uh, yeah. than doesn't is available. That
4: does me. Who wants a commute? If you but, have well, kids or family, if you're yep. young, it's one thing. If you're young and you want to be meeting people. I think if out you're young,
2: you things. need to be meeting people. You need to be if in you a have, city.
4: You know, but you know the demands, if you have right. kids and yes. the idea of spending a couple hours commuting yep. is very difficult, especially like, right. look, if you're a parent these days, that means you, you are a chauffeur basically to get yep. your kids everywhere.
5: That I get is very true.
4: Work-life balance.
0: Coming up on Squawk Pod, Guggenheim's Alan Schwartz, the last CEO of Bear Stearns on the economy, the reminders of the banking crisis we saw this year, and what's next for the markets.
1: What's happened is the duration risk that lenders and a number of borrowers took takes longer to be impacted by rising rates. But it's happening. There's
5: a tightening in conditions. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway,
4: You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin.
2: We're joined now on set by a special guest here to share his macro outlook and talk about debt and M&A expectations and so many other things. Guggenheim Partners Executive Chair uh, Alan Schwartz is here. It's great to have you uh, back at the table. Nice to be back. Uh, A lot to talk about And I always think of you as somebody who has your pulse on the corner office, if you will, sort of the CEO set and what's going on in the boardroom these days. And so we're watching the markets play out. We've also got a whole bunch of earnings reports that have been coming over the last couple of days. But I'm curious sort of how you think that translates or not into confidence, if you will.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think uh, in boardrooms and in the C-suite, I think that the that corporations, the the larger corporates, public corporates, kept their balance sheets very strong, uh, unlike lots of other parts of the market. And so now that they're seeing some of the, they were kind of out of the M&A market in a lot of cases because of private capital. And so now they're seeing a chance to come back in, right, because they kept their balance sheet strong. At the same time, the macro environment, um, especially geopolitical and all these other things, um, you know, creates concerns in the boardroom as to whether now's the time or wait on some of these things. So what we're seeing is we saw a big drop in m and activity, right, when uh, the capital markets tied up for a mm-hmm. lot of the private deals. But now you're seeing a lot of, uh, let's say, discussions and activity beginning, uh, clearly picking up from the corporate side that's seeing their opportunity to come in. Uh, But, you know, how many of those will get across the line, we're going to have to wait. But does that signal then that there's
2: a confidence that we're not heading into a 2024 recession or soft landing? What what does
1: that mean? No, I, I find it's very interesting. You know, they're not sure about the economy. And personally, you know, I was in the camp that 23, we would not see a recession because of the strength of consumer balance sheets to start out and demographics, which people don't pay enough attention to. And so we didn't expect higher rates to hit consumption right away for a whole bunch of those reasons. On the other hand, in talking to Ann Walsh, our CIO, we keep an eye on what's happening in the, um, in the banking and the financial markets. And, and what's happened is the duration risk that lenders and a number of borrowers took takes longer to be impacted by rising rates. Uh, but it's happening, there's a tightening in conditions. So we personally, we believe there's a recession coming Now, we don't know how deep. It's hard to know. Going back to your question, just to set that up for that, going back to that question, I think that a lot of companies are looking now strategically for the long term, and they're really not just looking to consolidate, although certain areas are. They're really looking to get the capabilities and the technologies that they need for the very changing environment they're looking at. And so a lot of the deal activity will not be dependent on the economy unless there's some big, you know, disruptive wave.
4: How much of the hesitation is just, look, if you're a corporate, you gotta answer for the price you pay. So you don't wanna pay too much and look like a dummy. And if you're somebody being acquired, you don't wanna accept a bid that's too low. So just trying to get to that feeling of, I think this is a great deal, but I'm gonna have to justify it. No,
1: you put your finger right on it. I would say, it always happens. Sellers are saying, well, wait a minute, um, you know, look at my 52-week high. You know, buyers are going, yeah, but that doesn't count anymore, right? But and look, a number of sectors are pretty far down, too, right? So um, I think that you know, corporations that feel like they have a strong strategic plan, and, and let's say this, that have strong backing from their investors on the plan they're on, um, they're looking to step in now because they've been telling people they've been waiting. Now they're starting to see the sellers come and say, let's be a little more reasonable. And then, look, the one other issue that we all know is antitrust. That's having, that's having a bit of a chilling effect, but the fact that companies that decided to fight right. um, this latest antitrust wave and have won is giving a little more confidence that if, if the facts really support that so, they should be able to do it, that they'll go forward. But does that right?
2: mean the conversation in the boardroom is saying, so we're in, what are we, end of October, called mid-October. Do they say, let's wait a year and see what the world looks like
1: in, in terms of a political world a year from now, or, or let's strike now and see what happens? I think there's more strike now. Uh, as I say, if you've, been, if you've been sitting there saying, look, we really need these capabilities for our right. long term, we really need this technology, or this. so again, not, right. a lot of it's not consolidation. Because in the consolidation wave, you'll see a lot of uh, stock for stock. But on that side, I think since they've been waiting, you know, they don't know. They don't want to miss the window. How concerned should
2: we be, if you consider them the smart money, that private equity has effectively stepped away from the table, if you will, when it comes to deal making? We Uh, were looking at, they represented something like 40% of the marketplace in terms of M&A just about a year ago. And now, what is it, 25% or something like that? So if you you think they know something, uh, it may be a great opportunity for strategics to get in insofar as they don't have competition, but uh, there might be a reason for that, which may not be very good.
1: Well, no, I I don't think that's what's driving. I think uh, a lot of the the larger private equity comes, have new funds and they're really looking, but they're kind of waiting on the financial side of the equation on, on, you know, interest rates are way more important to their deals. And that's where duration risk, okay? In the private equity wave we saw, which was a lot of different deals, a lot of them were financed by floating rate debt, right? And so there's a lot of those deals from the past where you're starting to see delinquencies, you're starting to see bankruptcies. And that's part of why, say, Ann Walsh and I think we're still, we think there's already a tightening of financial conditions. And so that group of buyers is more affected by the tightening of financial conditions than the corporates who have been sitting on cash who can come in.
4: When you look at the banking sector right now, I mean, you know the banking sector inside out, you know the financial sector Um, as the former CEO of Bear Stearns. How big are the banking problems that we dealt with in the spring relative to what we saw back in 2008? Do we know everything that's out there right now or do you worry about that?
1: Well, I think we know a lot. I mean, uh, as I think you know, my partner Jim Milstein was uh, advising the FDIC and, and there was some staggering duration risk taken by a few banks. Uh, But you went through the rest of the banking system and the bottom line of it is that the regional banks especially had to take duration risk because there was nothing else to do. But they were more cautious about it. So the bottom line of what's happened with rates clearly is affecting their capital ratios. And so it's tightening their lending standards. Um, But you know, it doesn't yet seem like it's going to be a real, real problem in the system. Again, the thing we don't know, though, is you know, what's, the, what's the duration risk in the borrowing community? Obviously, a lot of us are talking about commercial real estate as, as one aspect of that uh, because of what's going on with Back to Work. But a lot of, you know, if a lot of borrowers were borrowing on a floating rate basis and they can't afford to take on the new one, then what's that gonna do the banks? That's the next wave to watch, but it doesn't feel like it's gonna be I don't know, a systemic type of crisis. Yeah. I want to come back to something you said at, at the beginning.
2: It struck me, and I, I didn't want to interrupt your, your, your line of thinking, but when you were talking about just your economic- There is no cor- line of thinking. No, but no, in terms of your economic <laughs> forecast, one of the things you said was you said that you think that demographics is something that people don't pay enough attention to. Right. So what was it about the demographic piece that you were po- focused on?
1: Uh, very much two things. One, um, the- The baby boom generation, as it's hitting retirement age, um, the number of workers of working age is declining. Look, there used to be five 18 to 64s for every 65 and over. There's now three and a half going to two and three quarters. But for the last 10 years, the over 65s that stayed in the workforce doubled. So then when COVID hit, a lot of them said, okay, now it's time to retire. So the bottom line of that is there was just a tighter labor supply than people realize coming into this downturn, number one. And number two, a smaller fact but important, is that a larger percentage of the population that's now living on their savings instead of living on their wages and borrowing, a rise in interest rates is like a wage gain for those people. And so, you know, it supports their consumption. So demographics are going to have a big impact. The biggest impact that I worry about is on the federal budget. Fair enough. Uh, Alan Schwartz, thank you so very much for joining us. And Got I want to
2: mention, I know we're, I, I, we're going to go to the same place. Okay, I was going to mention that you're participating in Robinhood's uh, investor conference, which is taking place next week. And folks should check it out uh, on the Robinhood hey, website. But did, if you have another plug, uh, go for it.
1: I'm very excited about this conference. Look, we have, I'll be interviewing Michael Che, who's great to hear Blackstone's views. But we have Hall of Fame investors lined up, you know. I mean, Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Druckenmiller, Ken Griffin, et cetera, you know all of the greatest ever. And Condoleezza Rice will talk about the geopolitical. So this, for anybody that cares about the investment markets, this conference is just, it's a Taylor Swift ticket, right? right? And then the other thing though, the thing that makes it really exciting is anybody that buys a ticket and attends, it's a great thing, but at the same time, every single dollar is gonna go out on the street to those those organizations that are helping the people most in need. And you've been a longtime supporter of Robin Hood, and we appreciate that. You can
2: check it out on Robinhood.org. Uh, Thank you super very Thank much. You. A-
1: cheese a- will be next.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, President Biden's imminent trip to Israel. What the administration is saying publicly about his first trip since the war's outbreak, and what might be going on behind the scenes. Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Stavridis on the politics at play
3: very quietly, sub-Rosa, sotto Voce, off stage, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, the president himself, they're privately counseling the Israelis to go carefully here.
5: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending,
1: President Biden will visit Israel. He's coming here at a critical moment for Israel, for the region, and for the world.
2: Up on and Andrew, Q. I want to talk about a story about what's happening in the Middle East right now, because as fears of escalation rise in the Middle East, President Biden set to visit Israel today in a sign of unity. I want to bring in Admiral uh, James DeVrida, uh, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. who's also Chief International Analyst for NBC News and MSNBC to weigh in on what this means. And so, Admiral, why don't, why don't we start there? What does this mean? Uh, how important a speech and, and, a, and a visit is this? Um, and, and what are you expecting to see?
3: It's a big vote of confidence in Israel. It's a signal to uh, both the United States, but also to the Israelis of absolute, rock-solid, unified support. Number two, Andrew, it's a warning signal to Iran. And the president has been quite vocal in the last uh, week or so, pushing against Iranian escalation in the region, to your original point. And that's why the president, in addition to going himself, has ordered not one but two aircraft carrier strike groups, as well as 2,000 Marines, are all headed toward Israel. It's a powerful show of force, and it's designed to deter Iran.
2: Admiral, let's talk about deterrence. What what do you think the risk is right now that this war expands? Uh,
3: I think it's actually small. I think it's 10%. Now, that's high in one sense, kind of uncomfortable. But uh, I think there's an 80 to 90% chance, let's put it that way, Andrew, that this thing will be contained in and around Gaza City, that Hezbollah in the north will not lash out. And the reason I think that is because the fundamentals. Iran doesn't want a war right now. They're Mm. not looking for a regional conflict that'll completely degrade their own economy. Israel doesn't want a wider war, obviously. They're gonna have their hands full in Gaza. And above all, the United States really doesn't want a wider war. Hence, all of the forces moving there. So while not negligible, I think the threat of a bigger escalation that draws a regional war forward kind of in the 10 percent range.
2: When you look at what's happening now in Gaza and what Israel is doing to try to uh, both hold Hamas accountable as well as trying to return uh, those hostages back to Israel, how would you assess that progress and what does that look like to you?
3: I think they have made uh, very strong progress as follows. They have mobilized 350,000 troops. Think about that for a minute. Just the logistics of that, getting everybody in a uniform, getting everybody armed, getting everybody fed, getting everybody to a new destination, 350,000 on a total population in the country of 10 million, only 7 million Jews in that population. So uh, this has been a big undertaking. They've done it quite smoothly. Secondly, special forces infiltrating, moving through Gaza, you see flickers of this. And thirdly, Andrew, the precision guided strikes. Um, There's been no big collateral damage event Israel has created the conditions, we would say, in the military to push forward if and when they choose to do so. I, I would give them high marks for how they are reacting now, obviously low marks for the intelligence failure that led to the initial attack.
4: Admiral, how, where do you put the odds at the, the risk of this expanding into becoming more of a regional conflict? with? another front opening up in Lebanon, potentially other areas too. I I mean, I I realize that the president going there, President Biden going there today is to show support, but it feels like, I think someone else called it a bear hug to really make sure that they use extreme caution and are very Mm -hmm. surgical in these strikes to try and protect civilians so as to not conflate things.
3: That's precisely right, Becky. um, I think that very quietly, sub-Rosa, sotto Voce, stage, you're seeing uh, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, the president himself. They're privately counseling the Israelis to go carefully here because you don't want to flip this narrative, which quite correctly at the moment is, the brutality, the horror of what Hamas has done. You don't want to flip that narrative and end up with heavy handed Israel overreact. So, uh, yes, the Israelis are are getting that kind of uh, quiet counseling in the midst of the full throated public support.
2: But Admiral, isn't that the conundrum? Isn't that the trap that in some ways Hamas has tried to set here and 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 how do you see this playing out over the next several weeks? Because by and large, you have to imagine, unless you believe that some of uh, the Palestinians and others are going to end up uh, going to Egypt or other places, that you could end up having at the same time uh, as this terrible and tragic and disgraceful uh, situation that Hamas has uh, created uh, a separate humanitarian crisis.
3: Um, This is top of mind for Israel, Andrew, and this is exactly why the Israelis have moved this massive force to Gaza, but have effectively paused that ground assault. That's why they are using extreme caution in the precision-guided strikes they are using. That's why they are uh, doing everything they can to encourage Egypt, with whom they have quite good relations, to accept these uh, Gazan population. That's why the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia have indicated willingness to fund all of this. Right. I think that will happen. And already 600,000 have left Gaza City. More will follow. It will give the Israelis a chance if they go in to do it in a relatively right. measured At,
2: way. Admiral, real quick, because I know we got to go. relationship between Israel and Saudi, how do you think this plays out? And I'll give you just one other sort of backdrop to this, a number of uh, major American CEOs planning to be in Saudi next week. They do their big conference every year, uh, financial CEOs and others, and uh, lots of, uh, you know, behind the scenes talking about whether folks should go, whether they shouldn't go, what the relationship is, what's going to happen. What do you say?
3: I say go. And I think that there will be uh, a resurgence in the Israel-Saudi Arabia partnership There's a kind of inevitability to that that's going to transcend this. Hamas is not going to be allowed to knock that off. If you go as a CEO to Riyadh, you will hear that. I think you'll gain confidence, uh, certainly at the Carlyle Group. Our teams are, are moving forward.
2: Admiral, we appreciate it. Thank you. You bet.
0: And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And please follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. Click that follow button and don't miss a minute. That's it. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys.
5: From a flat tire in the city